Hello, I'm David Hughes and this is Rogue Commentary, the podcast that brings you brand new audio commentaries for interesting movies by the people who made them. For this episode, I'm delighted to welcome back my screenwriting hero and mentor, Stephen D'Souza, who not only wrote some of our all-time favourite action movies, Die Hard, 48 Hours, Commando and Yes, The Running Man, but also several early formative drafts of the infamous 1991 action romantic comedy train wreck Hudson Hawk, subsequently rewritten by Daniel Waters and an ad-libbing Bruce Willis. It's well known that Hudson Hawk went wildly off the rails during production, but whether you love it or loathe it, for me it's very much both, it's fascinating to unpick the story of how Stephen's drafts devolved into the film that crash-landed in cinemas in the summer of 1991. Stephen was an early guest on Rogue Commentary for our Die Hard episode back in Christmas 2021, and it remains, as you'd expect, our biggest hit. I'm thrilled that he's come back to join me for a walk through one of cinema's greatest examples of a curate's egg. As always, you can listen like this as a podcast, or for best results, cue it up to the film, skipping the TriStar logo and pressing play just at the book at the beginning is about to open. Ready to play? Three, two, one, play. The book is opening. The book is opening on my memories. I'm Stephen D'Souza, and I'm here with uh, David Hughes, and we are looking at Hudson Hawk. Now, this beginning didn't All right. work this... in the in the drafts that you that you worked on, but tell us how you brought the whole Da Vinci thing into the story. Uh, well, uh, I had done. I don't know. I've lost track. I probably wrote at least 15 scripts for Joel Silver and Larry Gordon, either together or separately. And uh, Joel had this uh, uh, this compulsion, this 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 desire to do a movie about alchemy. And every time I did a movie with Joel, he would say, you know, all the greatest minds in history were into alchemy, even like um, uh, uh, Newton was an alchemist. We got to do a plot about alchemy. And I would say, Joel, the kind of movies that we do, like there's no, it's like doing a movie like like about uh, uh, reincarnation, where the villain's plot is to kill himself and leave the money to himself, uh, or the horoscope movie. You could do the horoscope murders, like Agatha Christie. Somebody is is murdering all all the Gemini's, but you can't do a plausible Joel Silver movie where because Mercury is in retrograde. Crimes are up, you know, the percentage of people that will buy into it. So finally, when he came to me and said, I want to do this, like, you know, Master Thief movie uh, with um, with Bruce, um, and we were looking for a MacGuffin, at that particular time, Armin Hammer had uh, purchased uh, this um, uh, a book, the, uh, I forget what they call it, uh, help me here, but uh, it was like the coda, the, the yeah, the Codex that had been on sale, and there was a lot of publicity, and it was on display. And I said, "Let's use that for the MacGuffin." And I did some research and discovered that there was this that uh, there was this famous uh, unbuilt project that he had done. And I said, "All right, this is the one where we can actually get in the the alchemy plot. It would work with this story." Uh, so the original script. Uh, that Reno and Osborne had done was kind of a Cold War script where um, the character, um, this was based on Bruce's ID. He always wanted to do a uh, cat burger thing um, where uh, it was stealing the artificial heart that was going to go into Gorbachev or something. It was like a fully disguised, um, you know, CIA plots. So 
none of that remained except for the the character of the uh, of the the uh, cat burglar. So anyway, when I went into the screening of this film, uh, as I walk in, Joel intercepted me in the lobby and said, "I know what you're going to say. I know what you're going to say, but trust me." With all the ad libs and the craziness, you were there in Rome. We had two, two test screenings. The audience didn't know which end was up. So the only way to make it work was to put this narration over the opening scene. So to put you in some perspective here, I'm assuming that the people like listening to this are familiar with the picture. Uh, in a way, this is a riff on Goldfinger. The villains in this movie want to do exactly the same thing what Goldfinger did, which is disrupt the value of gold in the world, and they will be the only people to have real gold, which was what Goldfinger was going to do. Now, imagine if there was an opening over the opening scene of Goldfinger, where Bond has the duck on his head and is in the uh, you know the, uh, the 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 scuba diving suit. If a narrator said, "Arik Goldfinger intends to rob Fort Knox, to break into Fort Knox to irradiate it," so that you're like, and that's what's going on here that. In, in the original script, which had the same opening scene uh, here, we saw with the same Italian dialogue, Da Vinci looked off and said, oh, my God, oh, no, oh, no. And we didn't know what scared him, right? And then he looked around and he hid the three pieces of the master. Uh, in, in, in mine, it was gears rather than uh, prisms in the script. Uh, and he hid them. But we didn't know what startled him. And you did not know until the analogous point in Goldfinger, like uh, I'm making this up, but if Goldfinger's 110 pages long, I guess about page 81, like right before the airplanes fly over, he admits what's really... So that's what was going on in here. So uh, so I just groaned that... It, so now you have no curiosity whatsoever for the, in the audience's mind of what's going on. Uh, your hero looks stupid because he isn't figuring it out. Everybody looks stupid. And the whole thing is a stage weight. So like... The air is beginning to come out of the balloon right here in this opening scene where the narrator says he was trying to make bronze, but he made gold by accident. And the assistant says, oh, maestro, you've made gold. And he says, don't ever tell anybody. So, uh, you know, and then, of course, the sequence goes on even longer. And I don't even know why they uh, and I don't even know why they show the, uh, the, the, the thing flying, which, again, was a thing. You should wonder whether it will work or not. You know, in mine, it was the model was hanging from the ceiling of Da Vinci's workshop, but when Bruce Willis gets into it, you don't know whether it's going to work. So we hear this, this, the movie just shoots itself in the foot right here in this opening scene. And so, um, you know, uh, honey, would you bring me a, uh, a, a very strong bloody Mary, please make it a double. <laughs> All right. So now we have a very nice cup, which, which I like, uh, it, uh, which is, uh, this seems to be a hangover from, in my script, I had a title sequence, uh, which was kind of to uh, echo the old Pink Panther movies, where uh, we had a title sequence where all the characters were cartoon characters, and the hawk was akin to the uh, Pink Panther or the Inspector Clouseau cartoon character, and uh, the segue would go from the cartoon hawk flying uh, to Bruce, uh, nicknamed the hawk. Uh, so here we have a um, uh, a similar thing where it goes from the um, flying uh, Da Vinci uh, glider uh, to Bruce here. All right, so uh, this is pretty similar to uh, the script I had. I did not have the, uh, I had the uh, parole officer meet him outside, uh, not in the prison, but the dialogue is very much as it was. Um, 
we're in a mad rush here to give the plot going um and uh a little faster than i would have done but this dialogue looks very familiar i'm having like it's it's, it's ringing in my ear so this gates he, he was always a sleaze in every draft wasn't he he was always a sleaze, but here is a really cute thing here. I can't believe the dialogue is missing here. I I don't know. I uh, as he as as they go to let him out. Let's see if this is still here. Yeah, I had it when I had him. As they go to let him out, uh, the, the uh, guard says, "Oh, I got the wrong keys. These are the keys for 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 the seat the seat the seat block." And then Bruce took some, takes a paper clip uh, off of the papers and unlocks the uh, the the door. And the guard says, if you could do that, why didn't you ever break out before? And he says, breaking out is easy, staying out is hard, which I think was a nice line of dialogue and a nice business to show how good he was. Yeah. Um, in fact, in my draft, I had many examples where Hawk was, would unlock a door or solve a puzzle. It was a running thing to uh, remind you of how skilled he was. Uh, now, now, in my first draft, uh, his mentor... Uh, was an older uh, African American thief, uh, and uh, who uh, was having you know um, health problems. Uh, who was out on parole, and one of the threats that uh, the uh, Gates, that the the crooked uh, parole officer, was doing was, you know, I can put your buddy back in jail anytime, and he'll die there. You know that. Uh, and then Bruce was actually personally friendly with Danny DeVito, and so in my second draft, it was clearly written for Danny DeVito, uh, and. In the original perception of the script, and even the second script, that character died. But you know, Bruce fell so much in love with Danny DeVito that he said, "We spoiler alert: we can't kill him." <laughs> so Danny uh, must have come aboard quite quite early, though, because I felt Danny's yeah, yes, yes. your draft. Uh, yes, you know, at this point, you got to remember. Uh, uh, you got to remember that uh, uh, Joel uh, was uh, riding high. We were coming off of a lot of hit movies. Uh, so we had already put out feelers to cast and uh, I said, you know, we're shooting this movie in Italy. Are you available? And the answer was yes. And so hard as it is to believe now, it, we, uh, like I said, like in my second draft, we knew it was going to be a Danny DeVito and I was writing for him. I try to get this, you know, here in my head, the way different people. So I would actually look at other pictures that Danny did to get his voice in my head. Uh, and um, we wrote, I wrote the first draft for the villain to be, uh, uh, Joss Auckland, who was the villain in um, Lethal Weapon 2, playing a very similar character, an evil, rich South African, crossed with his part in White Mischief, where he was like uh, a, a, a member of the peerage, uh, but he was evil. And I wrote it for him. And because he was from South Africa, I gave him a Zulu butler, who was going to be played by Peter Michael Hall, who played Harry and the Henderson and also played the Predator. So he was a tall, handsome guy who spoke, you know, uh, RP, uh, uh, you know, Oxford tone English. Uh, and it was perfectly appropriate that he had up his sleeve a high tech version of the traditional Zulu weapon that was up his sleeve uh, that uh, that he used. Now, when they made him just like, you know, a white butler, like, you know, he just had random knives up his sleeve. So the the whole connection went away. Now, when I did my second draft, uh, Michael Lehman said, you know, maybe instead of a male villain, we should have a female villain. 
So he put out feelers, and we found that Audrey Hepburn wanted to work. So I wrote the second draft for Audrey Hepburn as the widow of Josh Auckland, who had died before the picture began, but still had the same Zulu butler. And there was a wonderful speech in the movie where uh, to, to scare, you know, Hawk, where uh, Josh Auckland or his widow uh, said, uh, uh, said, Umchaka, uh, show it. And he brings out the thing. And he says, he says, you know, he says, you're a Hebrew historians in Hollywood. Uh, I made a big deal of uh, Custer's last stand. But, you know, 10,000 miles away at a place called, um, not Rourke's Drip, but I forget the other place. Where, you know, help me, please. You're, you're the Brit. Um, what was the name of the the big wipeout? Uh, yeah, yeah, Insuala, whatever. It's terrible. And we'll say Rourke's Drip, even though that's wrong. Like, you know, an entire entire battalion of 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 uh, of uh, the British Army was wiped out with this, and the guy unleashes the thing, kaching. Um, so uh, I had a real guy. Guy, he was he was racist, he was anti-Semitic and stuff, and and replaced by these two fools. Um, anyway, uh, if I have one like you know bone to pick with this movie, it's that there was a competition on the set of everyone trying to be funnier than everyone else, and there's kind of a rule of thumb that. If you're trying to be funny, you shouldn't laugh at your own jokes. There's nothing funnier than playing it straight. I mean, the Coen brothers. I mean, look at all their movies. I mean, nobody is try nobody is acting funny. And so, I mean, the, the Big Lebowski. I mean, I, when that movie's on, I can't turn it off. But no one is no one thinks they're funny in the movie. People say hysterical things, but the other characters don't laugh. So, you know, Disney has movies where the animals talk. Even in Beauty and the Beast, the furniture talks, right? And there's always a funny sidekick. Like in Aladdin, you have uh, the parrot, Gilbert Gottfried. And he says, uh, Jafar, they won't to us. We have to skip town. He says, quiet, you miserable chicken. Soon all Arabia will be under my... No, the villain is dead straight. So here, all the villains are silly. So it just breaks the cardinal... I mean, there's two cardinal rules in, in, in filmmaking. One is don't cross the the line, don't cross the you know the, the one eighty line with the camera, and the other is the villains can't be silly. They can be funny. Alan Rickman was very funny for me in Die Hard. Um, in The Running Man, we had a very very funny villain, uh, but uh, they don't think they're funny, and no one is laughing in the movie. Ideally, you want to laugh in the theater. So here, this whole thing of the bar, this is a thing, too, where uh, you got to remember that Michael would have these conversations with me about, you know, uh, Jacques Derrida and deconstructionism. And when I got on this movie, he said, you don't want to deconstruct this form, you know, and we should upend everything. And I go, yeah, you know, I totally get that. In fact, I have a script I've been working on, which is trying to be the anti-action movie. But we all got hired here to make this as a, you know, action, adventure, comedy, romance romance you know are you sure they want us to deconstruct it maybe that should be the next movie we do but uh he was you know hell-bent on on doing uh uh doing the um the deconstruction uh, of the action movie so for example the idea there there was a and it's funny there was a lot of seeds in my drafts that sort of paid off when the original character dana devito played was older and was diabetic there was a running thing about Bruce was trying to get candy bars, not a cappuccino, but a candy bar uh, that he liked, that he couldn't get in prison. And it became an important point later on with his diabetic um, uh, ex-partner. 
but somehow this candy bar running gag that was in my script somehow inspired either Michael or Dan Waters to say, you know, instead of the candy bar being a running gag, what if there's people whose nicknames are candy bars? You know, I, 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 I guess I, I don't know uh, how that, you know, crept into the movie. Um, and uh, this robbery sequence here was always Bruce alone. So, again, they were having so much fun uh, making the movie that it started to become a buddy movie. And Bruce was always a great fan of the Three Stooges as well. And so sort of that crept into the movie as well. Anyway, uh, again, the two criminals called the Mario Brothers, you know. I mean, that's a cute gag. I have no problem with that. So it's got a little um, Bing Crosby and Bob Hope vibe, hasn't it? As well as the three studios. Yeah, yeah, yes, definitely, 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 it morphed into a road movie. Yeah, uh, it definitely morphed into a road movie. Oh, how did we meet Bruce? Well, how did we meet Hawk in the first? Um, in in your first draft, there was a pretty memorable. It was the opening. same. It was, it was being released. He was being released from prison. Oh, uh, no, I think he was. Um, I think he was free climbing. No, in my yes, in my yes, right in my first draft. It was actually, years later, I was like, what the hell? It was exactly the same opening as Mission Impossible 2, where he's climbing on a mountain, and yeah. when he comes back down, the uh, he was already out of prison. And then, uh, so I was sort of like flabbergasted when I saw Mission Impossible. I said, did somebody read that first draft of mine? It was, you know, you know, or, you know, great, maybe great minds think alike. I don't know. Uh, in my second draft, which I actually, as much as the, the climbing would have been fun, in my second draft, the idea of seeing him being released from prison was actually, uh, I, I think, a better idea, especially when you saw that the whole time he was in, he could have escaped, but he didn't because he was really trying to go straight. Yeah. There's a lot of business in the script. You touched on this earlier, but one of the things I really love is that you keep reminding us every 10 pages that he's a master thief by giving him some little bit of business to do. And I know that those bits of business are really, really hard to think up because you have to basically be a master thief yourself in order to think of them. So yeah. do you remember any of them? Because it, it definitely wasn't singing and skateboards in, in your drafts. Uh, no, no. Uh, no, I think, the I think I used the skateboard, though. I think the skateboard is at one point. Okay. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure the skateboard is in one of my drafts because it's a variation of a gag I did on The Six Million Dollar Man where uh, – we used to always do on the six million dollar man. We have to have arenas like an arena, like uh, a rodeo, uh, you know, or uh, you know, or let's do an episode, uh, a bottle show, or let's do. So there's one episode where whatever the cockamamie reason was, the six million dollar man had to infiltrate a roller derby team, and it turned out that at one point in the robbery, um, the only way to get past the guards was what they do here with the skateboards. So the six million dollar man was on roller skates in a crouch. So I'm pretty sure I recycled in one draft. Uh, uh, the gag of of the at one point there was the skateboard to get below to get below a camera. But you're right; you have to in all these kind of movies, you have to do a uh, uh, a uh, reverse engineering. I yeah. guess is what you would do. So I'd find so for example, um, uh, the in, in my first draft, the first of all, the, again talk about deconstruction. The bar was an old school bar, but here in the movie, it's almost like the deconstruction of the original intentions I had is on screen. Like when he goes to the bar, he says, where's all the stuff from the old bar? And they go in the back room. <laughs> so it actually, the bar that I wrote was been deconstructed. And, and the movie says, look, we deconstructed the bar and now it's a fern bar. But anyway, before when it was still the old fashioned bar, um, 
Bruce comes in and all his old friends are there for a welcoming home party. And there was a running gag where they gave him, gave him, they, they had the finger trap, you know, the old thing where you put your fingers in mm-hmm. and he can't escape. And they, they were challenging him to get out of it in so many seconds. And there's a girl chewing his ear and he says, you know, Marsha, come on. I've been locked up for two years. Stop it. You know? And then as a payoff, the, uh, the parole officer came in there and embarrassed Bruce and threatened him in front of all his friends. And at the last minute, he trapped him in the finger trap uh, just to like uh, stick it to him. Needless to say, the the uh, the songs were not uh, were not in here. Uh, and one of the things that I had, and again, years later, I'm flummoxed. Um, I had Bruce rehearsing for the robberies by going to a playground putting chalk on the ground and drawing the floor plan of where he was robbing and then timing himself over and over and over. And that was on better call Saul, the exact same thing. And again, our, you know, did, did someone, you know, doing like movie archeology span stumble upon the yellowed faded, you know, 30 year old copy of my script or someone else have the excellent idea. I don't know. You did keep some good ideas in here. The one about the reversing of the, you know, the replaying of the tape so that they th- they thought it was um, static. Was that seen here for the first time or, d- or did, did that come from somewhere else? Uh, I, I don't know at this point. And, you know, in this primitive era of technology, uh, was I the first person to say that you could uh, mess with a uh, 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 mess with the videotape or play it back or cover the lens? Uh, I don't know. It's uh uh, it's a you know a pretty. I don't think that I get to get a MacArthur grant for uh, having you know <laughs> the idea of like you know messing with the surveillance camera and the videotape. So we've we've talked about some of the tonal models for this film, which are obviously many and and kind of varied and all over the place. But did you have a particular tone in mind? Because I think what what Bruce and Robert Kraft, his buddy, you know, came up with years and years earlier when they first came up with this character of the Hudson Hawk was kind of who was James Bond before he was James Bond, or he was kind of like a master thief who, who became a spy or something. What did you have to go on? Well, the, the first script uh, that, that Reno, that Reno and Osborne did was a very CIA uh, uh, kind of plot. Uh, My take on this was, this was a blue collar Cary Grant. My, my vision of this was, it was like the Hitchcock movie. I'm a complete, you know, not a Hitchcock, um, some people, a few people have noticed like Hitchcockian touches in my in in my films. Um, enough to a degree, I don't know how, but when Psycho was restored and was put out for home video, uh, to my astonishment, the Hitchcock family uh, contacted me and said, we would like you to do the introduction of Psycho, the first screening of Psycho at Universal Amphitheater, and do the introductory notes, which was uh, very flattering. And wow. um, I have a, uh, a, a, twi- I have a, uh, a Twitter friend, um, uh, uh, Alex de Iglesia, who's a, a Spanish director, who's uh, a big Hitchcock fan. And, uh, you know, he's, you know, befriended me over the internet and Zoom calls. And we talk about Hitchcock a lot. So I was definitely thinking of the uh, Hitchcock movie, uh, 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 To Catch a Thief, where he is recruited by the authorities to catch someone who's committing crimes uh, or he's going to go back to prison. Mm-hmm. So that idea was definitely, uh, you know, put in here. Doesn't the name George Kaplan turn up in uh, a bit later on as well, right out of North by Northwest? But that wasn't yeah, from yeah, your so drafts. Uh, no, but that was, you know, that was like literally putting the subtext, like, you know, into the text. Yeah. Uh, you know, that that joke, uh, yeah. which is I'm perfectly fine with that joke. Uh, it's the candy bars that get me. 
So at the at the first screening that you went to, you mentioned that Joel pulled you aside and warned you about. There was a whole bunch of other stuff he could have warned you about. I mean, by the time you got to swinging on a star, were you just there with your head in your hands and and uh, you know in tears? Uh, well, I knew about that because what happened was, you know, the, the movie the movie uh, started. I was off on like I think I was uh, on. I think I, I I was on already working on Beverly Hills Cop three, which is another story of something running off the rails. But uh, <laughs> I was uh, Eddie had asked for me to do the movie, and uh, I was doing multiple drafts, and uh, the um, uh, that movie kept changing like a weather vane. Where in my original script, my original script was really tore a vicious, vicious, savage, you know, uh, evisceration of Disney in general. To such a degree that when it almost got started, the movie almost started earlier, and then it got delayed and started later. But it was going the first time. We sent the script to Dick Van Dyke to be the Walt Disney character uh, that's in the movie. That's later played by the guy from um, uh, um, uh, Mr. Ed, um, whose name is Casey right now. And Dick Van Dyke said, this is an insult to the greatest man I ever met in my life, you know, Walt Disney. I will never do so. So that's how good a a a a, 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 a parody of Disney it was. Uh, needless to say, that got diluted. But anyway, um, I had done. I had already done a first draft and turned it in. And in that, the way Eddie Murphy got to Disney was he was taking his niece to Disneyland, and while he was there, someone was murdered. So Eddie did a movie called The Distinguished Gentleman, where he was someone who had the same name as a congressman. Uh, and he got elected by accident because the congressman had died. And in that movie, he's trying to be a grifter, sort of like I guess this uh, uh, this this fellow we got in Congress now, uh, uh, George. What's his name? George uh, uh, Santos. Yeah, it was all. It was, yeah, it was like that. He was completely getting into it for the grift. Uh, <laughs> but then one of his constituents comes in and says, "Look at these children. They all have leukemia from uh, power lines." Now, this is an urban myth, you know, that you get leukemia from power lines. In fact, in my neighborhood, on a regular basis, we have terrible telephone reception here, and they're always trying to put in a cell phone tower, but it's a NIMBY. When I go around, go go walking, uh, there's a place where people jog a lot, you know, and there's always somebody there with the card table. We use sign a petition to keep the cell phone tower out. So to this day, if you drive around my neighborhood uh, in West LA, you'll see people out on their lawns, standing on their lawn furniture, holding their phones in the air, trying to get a signal, but they're the same people to sign this stupid... Uh, petition um uh so um anyhow um the movie fails so they so they i'm on this movie and i was supposed to do a an, I, I had a contract here to do two drafts and a rewrite and a polish so uh i get a phone call you have to come back and we're pushing the button on your rewrite on this because you have to take the little girl out and i go why well because the audience doesn't want to see a movie with a little kids and Eddie murphy and I go, no, the movie's tanked because you had bald children scenes with bald children in the hospital ward, and you said it's from like cell phone towers. So nonetheless, so I said, I remember I was in, a, I was at, at a lunch meeting with Michael, and I said, you know, um, Paramount's pushed the button on me, and uh, it's like sort of good news and bad news. Uh, the good news, like you know, they're gonna pay me more money, uh, but they had it was in my contract with you that they were in first position. So he like jumped up from the table immediately and called uh, Dan Waters, <laughs> you know. Uh, so uh, uh, so here we have the candy bars coming in here uh, into the picture here. Yeah. Um, 
So, so uh, I always had this scene here, but in this scene, rather than these people eating candy bars uh, as a running gag, as Bruce is trying to figure out, you know, who is behind uh, the trap he's in and who's messing with him. I had all kinds of movie villains. I had like, like a Nazi looking guy. I had like a, uh, you know, some like rich uh, Arab shake with a young girl. I had uh, some mafiosa types. You know, rather than people eating candy bars, it was Bruce was trying to say who's the who's the suspect here. And here, I had him actually. Uh, we had the girl that he would eventually meet be in the movie, uh, uh, but uh, I also had a nun. And Bruce jumped up. There was a nun that was the highest bidder, and she was getting it getting it for an orphanage. And he's feeling really guilty that that he knows it's a fake, you know. And you know, sister, you don't want to do this. He says, "Are you kidding? Last year we made a fortune flipping a basket." Um, <laughs> So, but but again, somehow, again with, with with Michael, with these ideas, it's like it's like as 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 Dan came in, they sort of strip mine this for ideas, and they said candy bar, running gag, candy bar. And at one point, when they try to make Bruce behave, his buddy, in order to like stop being leverage, ate a candy bar to put himself into diabetic shock to give Bruce the distraction to like escape the room. There you can see the Arab shake there for a second, mm-hmm. but it's no longer important. This is where the movie goes completely off the rails in this scene here, which is where the plot got interesting. But all the villains are in here and are utterly, in my opinion, utterly silly. And like I said, if the Mayflowers had just been played it straighter, play it like Jafar in uh, in uh, Aladdin or like Scar in uh, The Lion King, I think the picture would have performed better. Um, and again, here you have the, uh, the, you know, again, the, the, uh, Mayflowers, uh, being like, uh, you know, completely, uh, insane. Yeah. I mean, Beverly Hills Cop is really funny, but Stephen Burkhoff doesn't know he's in a comedy. Exactly. Exactly. But there is a funny guy, the Serge, there's all kinds of ways to yeah. get comedy, you know, and there is, you know, so, uh, I, this Ga- Cary Grant thing that you mentioned earlier, you've seen, obviously we've seen Bruce in a, in a, uh, in a wife beater, in Die Hard, all, all grimed up, barefoot, and whatever. Now we see him in a tux, and it's like he can do both of those things, right? Yes, yes, uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, so uh, again, Die Hard, we always felt that that was like a uh, that he was like a blue collar James Bond. You know, mm-hmm. we were saying to ourselves that, that that series of films was that. This scene was always in the movie, and yeah. always with the explosion. Exactly with the hammer, it's a nice touch, isn't it? But and uh, here we wanted to, oops. Uh, 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 do this uh, scene here uh, in, in the uh, thing, but again, remember that in the movie had it in, in my draft. You're wondering how does this all come together? One of the things that makes an audience intrigued in the movie is what are the villains up to, and and when it's constructed like that on a subconscious level, you, you want the villains to thwart all of the intermediate attempts of the heroes to stop them. In Die Hard, the reason you sort of like Alan Rickman uh, and you want you're rooting for him against the police, against the FBI, is you don't know what he's up to. Mm-hmm. He says, "Who said we were thieves?" Right? You know. And then uh, if, there's no logic to it. Uh, this scene was always in my script here, uh, where he, where where uh, the, with the ambulances <laughs> and falling out and and surfing uh, on the uh, thing it was always there. It's a great scene. It was. Always- Always in the movie, but but again, the silliness here. Uh, uh, you know, some of these lines were in my script, but like he did not bump a cigarette from somebody in another car. Uh, you, you know, and uh, 
uh, you know, again, it, it undermines the, uh, the, the the menace and the danger. You you really rarely worry that Bruce is in danger in this movie because everything, um, you know, is so ridiculous. Yeah, and everything is, is is so silly. So there's no jeopardy. Uh, but, yeah, but again, uh, if you think how how there's no logic to it in Die Hard, um, when the FBI arrives, the other uh, his crew, Alan Rickman's crew, comes and says. The FBI is here. Oh, my gosh. And he says, great, my plan is working. Now, obviously, wouldn't he have told them what the plan was before they got on the airplane and came to, like, Los Angeles? He would have, but you accept it, and you're intrigued. And then when he finally says, you ask for miracles, I give you the FBI. And I saw the movie, you know, with audiences both here and abroad, and the whole audience goes, ooh, now I get it. <laughs> but here, you know exactly what's going on. There is no suspense whatsoever you know eventually where this is going. Yeah. So I find it like, you know, it, look, he wanted to deconstruct it. Michael wanted to deconstruct, you know, a, 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 a the movie, um, and it's deconstructed. This is, um, isn't the disorder, doesn't the disorderly orderly, the Jerry Lewis movie, have a, a gurney driving, riding down a road? With... Uh, I'm sure I saw that movie. I, 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 there's no doubt in my mind that that was uh, my inspiration. <laughs> there was a more elegant cut in in uh, in the draft where the bomb goes off in the auction house and then Bruce wakes up in the in the ambulance. That was a, I felt that was a better segue because then it's the mystery of who was the girl and did she live and is she okay and whatever. And then when she comes back later, it's more interesting, right? But yes, they had yes. that little bit of business after the bomb, which is kind of well. Again, this again takes the air out of the tire. He's he's so amazing. Now you were you were on location for like five weeks in Rome. Tell tell us about that. Yeah. Well, what happened? The movie had started, and I get a phone call uh, at home from an executive at TriStar, who says, "Listen, uh, I got a problem. We we got to get you back on Hudson Hawk." I, what are you talking about? And he says, uh, "You know, uh, it's running off the rails." Bruce is like rewriting the picture every day. He's ad-libbing. Uh, he's like, like become have, almost directing the movie. Now here we have the guy caught in the dumpster. Uh, the guy's caught in the dumpster here. And the dumpster falls over, you know. Uh, again, so all of the, all of the bad guys are, 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 are complete, you know, three stooges fools here. And yeah. I just think it, you know, I think there would have been a happy medium here, which is uh, uh, just not. The MTVIA, that's a good joke. And James Coburn, come on. Oh, yeah, that, that was a coup. Yeah. That was a coup. Bruce is, like, rewriting the picture every day. He's ad-libbing. And we're looking at the dailies, and it, this is not the movie you wanted to make. And, you know, Bruce liked you. He brought you in. We want you to go over there and try and get this back before it's too late, get it back to the draft that you did. I mean, let me tell you how crazy it is, is, is Dan Waters has quit the movie because Bruce is doing stuff that's too crazy for Dan Waters. Um, <laughs> he, uh, so uh, I said, well, okay, uh, you want to call my eight? He says, no, you don't understand. We're out of money. We're over budget. We're over schedule. We're out of money. I can't offer you any money to rewrite the movie. Uh, in fact, I don't want you to rewrite the movie. I want you to unwrite what is going on right now, just restore it from this point on, the minute you land, back to your draft. Uh, but what we can do is give you first-class accommodations and uh, and first-class flight over there and put you up. 
So I, oh, okay, fine. So my wife and I go over there. Uh, we land. We go right out to Chinachita, the studio. And Bruce Willis intercepts me, like, in the parking lot before I go on the soundstage. And he says, listen, Bruce brought us both into this movie. He had the deal at TriStar. He wanted to play a thief. It started with him. He's a producer on this movie. For all kinds, we want to do maybe a Die Hard 3 with him again or something. It's just not good business. It's not good movie business or even friend business for us to be the ones now to like slap him on the hand and take the pencil away from him. An uh, executive who, who, who from TriStar is coming here tomorrow and he's going to tell him, read Bruce the Riot Act and tell him he's got to stop doing it and we're going back to your draft. So you're not here because you're not here while you're really here. You and uh, Jerry, uh, by the way, my wife's name is Jerry and I want to be clear, not there's anything wrong with it. I want to correct the impression that like it's my that, that he's my life partner. In fact, I had one interview where they spelled the name Jerry and they get, and it was almost like the Seinfeld episode where like, gee, I don't want to complain that they're not giving the impression that I'm gay, but you know, so she insists that's why we got married after being together for several years because of two or three instances where the implication was gay. Yeah, there. And in fact, one time somebody called me up and said, listen, I want to do an interview on how hard it is for someone like you to be working in the action movie vein with all these movie stars. And I said, you must have seen that interview where where, where they, you, you, no, I'm, I'm not gay. You know, where, where, honestly, not the thing where I'm not gay. He says, no, no, I mean you being a Republican. And I go, I said, that's worse. Where did you get that one? You know, so... Uh, <laughs> so this was the argument that, that you just you and Jerry are just traveling through Europe and you stop by to be here for the set. So that was the idea. So that so was Joel. Next, sorry, that was Joel who met you outside before you met. Bruce. Yeah, who told me that? He says that's the story. You're just traveling through Europe. Yeah. Um, all right. So um, that's what we with the story we went with. Oh well, welcome. We're glad you're here now. And I just you know I had a tour of the Vatican. We went on a road trip. Uh, and we were there for like five weeks, hanging around with the movie company, which is always great. The movie company got me a private tour of the Vatican Museum. You know, like, you know, you know, there's nothing, you know, a movie company uh, uh, in Europe is like, you know, is like, you know, the Patton's Army in Europe. You know what I mean? You pretty much roll over everybody, get what you want. Now, uh, uh, here, by the way, here, look at the walls. See the paintings on the walls there? There's some yeah. paintings you barely glimpse. Okay. okay. Well, at one point, again, Joel and Michael, again, deconstructionists. They had this idea that the Mayflowers were so uh, evil and perverse that they could uh, that they could corrupt all the great artists in the world. So the idea was that their art collection was like Basquiat and uh, uh, Chuck Close and Andy Warhol. That the, all those great artists had done portraits of them, <laughs> but the way the movie was shot and the movie was not worry, working, you know, that in the editing room, they cut it to be faster, faster, faster. You don't get a glimpse of this artwork. Like you, you, never, you don't see it on the walls. This fake art collection, which was, was brilliant. Every painting is a parody of a well-known artist at oh. that era, at that time, a living artist was $1,100,000 was spent oh. on the, on the parody art collection. And wow. you barely can glimpse there. You can see a couple. There's a Chuck Close on the wall there. You can barely see them on the walls there. Uh, so this is where, but but again, it was like a, it was a, it was, you talk about inside baseball. This was like, not just inside baseball. This was inside, inside the dugout of baseball. This, the, how many people in the audience would recognize a parody of a Chuck Close painting, you know? Uh, so 
that that was uh, one of the things that uh, drove. So anyway, because they spent a million one on this fake art collection, there was no more money to pay me for another draft of the movie. The next day, an executive from TriStar is coming in. So we meet him the next day at the hotel. And he says, give me the shooting schedule. All right. You know, um, look, it's uh, it's the you know, it's the weekend. And uh, you're, tomorrow I see you're filming a uh, a robbery sequence, which was the sequence with the skateboards. Right. Which was pretty much dialogue free. And that was fine. It was always a skateboard moment. Uh, let's not have this conversation now and get Joel like and, and get Bruce off the rails because Monday and Tuesday's work is not dialogue. And it's, you know, and we'll get it late. So it turns out that every day this studio executive was there, he found an excuse to not have that conversation with Joel. Finally, the plan was we're going to have it uh, at lunch uh, on, I guess, whatever the schedule was. I think it was a holiday in Italy, whatever the, whatever the thing was. We're going to have it at lunch. So the night before we we're going to finally have the conversation, and the executive from TriStar is going to say, Bruce, you signed on to do this script, and we need to go back to the script. I'm prepared to do some reshoots, right? We're all in Bruce Willis's trailer, just, you know, hanging out, Joel, me, um, and uh, my wife's there and a couple other people, and the phone rings. And we're talking to Joel. We just start to have a conversation. Listen, tomorrow at lunch, we want to talk to you about a couple of things that we feel like we're, you know, we want to return to that got the studio involved that they're excited about and we're fear we're losing and Bruce is sort of listening. The phone rings, he gets on the phone and Bruce goes, uh-huh. 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 Really? No shit. All right. All right. Yes. Yeah. And he hangs up and he punches his hand and he, and he says, that was Mark Canton. They just had a test screening of Bonfire of the Vanities and there's some problems but the good news is my character tested off the charts and they are recutting the movie and I'm going to do some reshoots to build up my part in that movie. And he punches the air. <laughs> now, if you're familiar with Bonfire of the Vanities, the part that Bruce played was a British Fleet Street reporter right? who was a minor character in the book <laughs> and the movie, but now is going to become a major character in the movie. So Joel Silver kicks my ankle and he leans over and he says in my ear, he says, fucking Mark Canton just fucked his movie and this one too. This conversation we're supposed to have tomorrow is never going to happen. And it'll fall on deaf ears. So sure enough, the next day, the studio executive says uh he'd he'd made excuse every day he couldn't he would say i i, I couldn't make the meeting today breakfast meeting with bruce with bruce because i was on the phone with the studio and then later on go wait a minute the time difference he's on the phone with the studio at three o'clock in the morning so needless to say there was never a conversation with bruce about we're going back to steven's draft <laughs> so this scene here this dialogue here is almost this scene here is a verbatim from my script where uh uh, she is describing uh, the whole thing. Now, again, had you uh, had you uh, not given it up in the opening scene of the movie that the gold machine, a lot of people in the audience would start to go, "Ooh, this must have something to do with 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 Da Vinci," because we had the horse before, and now we're in the mood. This uh, and the audience starts to feel smart, mm-hmm. like they're figuring it out. And yeah. the best thing you can do in a motion picture, which I always try to do 
is to lay enough story pipe for the audience to be on the verge of getting it so that they have their aha moment like almost at the same moment as the hero. And that helps the bonding with the character. That helps the connection with the character being a a, a, a surrogate uh, you know, for the audience. Um, I'll give you an example of how carefully you can plan something like that. In another Bruce Willis movie, in Die Hard 2, the villain's cat trapped in the airplane, in the cockpit of an airplane. Uh, and they put an axe on the outside of the door so the door won't open to the cockpit. And outside, they say, how many hand grenades do we have? And he says, two each. He says, use them all. And they throw all the hand grenades through the glass of the cockpit. And Bruce Willis, is, so it's like a locked room mystery. It's like Agatha Christie's locked in a room with 15 hand grenades that are all going off. How do you get out of there? In fact, I pitched this before I wrote the movie to Joel and to Bruce. Uh, and they said, how do you get out of there? You'll have to wait for the script. Now, <laughs> to show you how carefully all the department heads could plan on having the audience be part of it. First off, airplane doors don't open, you know, don't open out. Right. You know, they, they, they open in. So first off, so that, that would, you wouldn't lock somebody in the cockpit that way. The color tone, uh, that the, the, the art department, I think it was uh, Jack DeGobia, the interior of the cockpit is deliberately all tilted towards gray, green, blue. There's nothing on the, on the color dial in the other direction. The only thing that's red in the entire scene is the, the ax on the door and the handle on the injection seat. And all of the interior scenes in the, in the cockpit of the plane, the ejection seat handle is visible out of focus or in the corner, and it's the only spot of red. But subliminally, the audience has seen that ejection seat half a dozen times before Bruce Willis noticed it. <laughs> and so when he pulls that ejection seat and escapes, the audience goes berserk because on a subconscious level, they say, oh, I would have done that. <laughs> you know, so like you're having to have like the writer, the director, the art department and the actor are all in the conspiracy to make the audience feel smart and a participant in it. And ideally, when you do something like this in a movie, it's like when you go to a concert, when you go to like to the 15th fake last tour of Steely Dan <laughs> and they play the first couple of notes of a song, the audience always applauds. The audience is applauding themselves for recognizing the song in three I, notes. Yeah. You know, that's what's going on. And ideally, that's what you want in uh, this kind of a movie. Yeah. Audiences love to be detectives, don't they? Even if it's not a, a detective story. Uh, yeah, yeah. Now, the, the museum that he robbed uh, was always uh, uh, changing. In the, my first draft, it was the Getty Museum. And I wrote it for the Getty Museum and uh, uh, and described there. And he went across the uh, on a wire. You'll see coming up. It was the same business here where I think he meets her in the restaurant. We haven't gotten to that yet, have we? Mm -hmm. Where he's... Have we done that scene? I, I, no, 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 no. He hasn't. And then, uh, and then later on, it became uh, it became the um, uh, a museum in London. I forget which one. The Sinclair Museum. Uh, I think it was might have been a made up one or. Uh, yes, but it was a thinly disguised one. Yeah. Uh, and, and then uh, when Dan came in, they decided that it was going to be uh, uh, the the the, uh, the Vatican, Vatican Museum. One of the things that made the picture spiral out of control and go hot, tremendously over budget was. Um, an additional robbery. Dan added one more robbery. I don't. I. I feel like one robbery per act, you know, would be fine. Mm -hmm. uh, but there were, a fourth robbery was added, which was going to be in Moscow. 
right? And that's why the picture decided they were going to film in uh, Budapest, Hungary. And they made arrangements to film in Budapest, Hungary. Uh, and then at the, as the picture got over budget and the script became like, you know, 140 pages long, they said, all right, we're not going to do that. We're cutting that whole sequence. But now they were trapped into paying off a studio in Hungary. You know, so it was just just like the fake the fake art music, the art collection. It was more money down the drain. Did you write that robbery? Oh, oh no, you said that was one of Dan's, right? Because there was a uh, robbery yeah. with a fancy safe, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah, the spinning safe, and 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 uh, the only thing that would stop that would make the robbery work was chewing gum. So so everybody so so to, so to prepare for the robbery, everybody was chewing gum. Right. And then and then right before Bruce went into Rob and all the characters, the the uh, the candy bars and and uh, uh, and Andy McDowell, Audie McDowell, they all gave Bruce their chewing gum and he rolled all their chewing gum into a ball the size of a softball and then used that to like jam the spinning safe. Uh, so uh, all of that was uh, went by the wayside. It was uh, never even filmed, although some storyboards exist somewhere. And then I think James Coburn says, oh, that robbery happened last night. So, so it happened off screen, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. So, yeah. Now, I know people love this movie, but I really believe everybody who loves this movie would love it just as much if the Mayflowers were played straight. Well, you say that, but you see, this is why I'm torn, because I love Richard E. Grant and Sandra Bernhard so much. And when I think of this movie, I do think of them. It's, it's It kills me to know that there's another of these movies out there in every other parallel universe where the villains are played straight and the Jeopardy's real. Well, you have to remember that the audience had seen Bruce Willis in these other movies, in the Die Hard movies, right? Mm. And this movie was not, if this movie had been promoted as a comedy, it would have been different but basically it was almost like a bait and switch people went in thinking it was going to be an action adventure movie with some comedy relief and then found it to be this and again you know what i'll write i'm wrong this movie is better with everyone being silly but there is no doubt in my mind that giving up the plot of the movie with the voiceover up front was the death of this movie wow because yeah. There's nothing to pull you through. There's nothing to put. There's no curiosity in your mind whatsoever as to what's going on here. And again, imagine Goldfinger. If there was a voiceover in the opening scene, yeah. the villain in this movie is planning to like irradiate the Golden Fort Knox, right? I mean, the whole movie, you know, uh, gets undermined. You know, so um, most movies that work that are kind of suspense pictures, whether they don't have to be like a uh, an Agatha Christie murder mystery, like. Who done it? But uh, a well done thriller. If it's not a who done it, it's why done it or a how done it. Yeah. There's some mystery that keeps the audience intrigued, and there is nothing in this movie that makes the audience curious about anything. Like you're not waiting for anything to unfold, so you're just watching. It's like a variety show. You're watching comedy bit after comedy bit after comedy bit, all of a theme. Yeah, which is a burglar. Anyway, I see a lot of gags that got transmuted. Like, I think uh, I always had the gag where Bruce was sliding from the robbery to the restaurant that uh, that he uh, knocked off a TV antenna, right? So I so uh, so I think it was somebody, because it was London, uh, I had I think they were watching a football game. 
they were watching a, a Manchester United on a football game, and the picture went out. So here <laughs> it becomes the post, the Pope watching uh, uh, Mr. Ed. So it's <laughs> right. like it's like it's like it's like no stone was unturned in overturning anything I did. <laughs> Someone really cared to to make it. As- yeah, 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 yeah. It, yeah. it was. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, it's funny when I do that, when I, when I, I, you know, I've been as, as often as someone has rewritten me, I rewrite people and I look through a script and I go, uh, you know, I respect whoever was there first and anything that's working, you know, I, I try and maintain. Yeah. If it ain't broken, uh, as opposed- you were saying before that sometimes they just change the names just to confuse the arbitrators of the WG. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's sometimes somebody will rewrite a movie and figuring like, Oh, I want to make, this more my film so we'll just change the names of the characters you know you know hoping that that will make an impression on like you know how much uh, brilliant uh, uh, your um revisions have been but uh there's got to be something in the original movie that you were brought in to do that people liked and uh you know if it works you know you know if it works don't fix it right prove it into a failure that's a saying that um uh a great uh uh, award-winning uh, director of, of uh, DP uh, that I, I worked with, uh, uh, William Fraker, who uh, directed Rosemary's Baby and Bullet and stuff like that. And I worked with him. And he used to have a saying all the time, let's not improve it into a failure. <laughs> you know? Wow, that Which, could be uh, made for this movie. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is definitely stuff that, this scene here is definitely from the from the pages of, of your writing, right? The whole, the zipline thing and him landing in, in the chair opposite Mandy McDowell. It's kind of done slightly different. Yeah. But it's kind of, you can see the, the, the your fingerprints are there in the scenes where they actually need to do uh, it. Yes, yes. And here, when it was in London, instead of landing on a truck in between, it was one of those um, like restaurants, floating restaurants or something going between. I think right. they have on the Toms, or the, it was some kind of some, it was some kind of boat or something uh, in 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 the Toms River mid mid thing. But it was exactly the same thing where he uh, uh, you know went across and he landed uh, in a restaurant. Yeah, but you didn't have the feathers. No, joke. no. I mean, whew. yeah. Well, well, there was something similar. There was something similar that uh, he on the way over that he that he. There was I can't remember. There was some other similar gag that on the way across the river he like picked up something. Oh, you know what it was? Uh, he, he, you know what it was? Uh, I think it was. Um, he, he said he he had a speech here that was not unlike the speech in um, that that Kevin Costner has. And uh, 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 he says, "I like long, slow kisses." And oh, you know, I like the, the the yeah yeah in Bull right. Uh, so he had a speech and stuff he liked. And uh, and then uh, the Andy McDowell character said, and Michael Jackson. And he said, oh, yeah. and, and you like Michael Jackson. He said, why? Well, he says, you're wearing one glove. And he realized he still had a glove on from the robbery, you know. That right, movie. right, right. Yeah. In fact, there was a nice setup on the, uh, of that um, in the very beginning of, of your drafts where you had, he leaves a sucker mark on the, on the window. And he says, oh, getting sloppy, Hawk. You know, and he just like rubs yeah, out yeah, yeah. The, the sucker mark from something that he's kind of put on the window, you know. Yeah. I mean, you knew Bruce, obviously, at this time. Do you feel like yeah. what, what, let's talk about, you know, what he was bringing to, to this movie. He had a hit TV show, obviously, but there's a very different thing, as you know, to being a movie star. And then all of a sudden he has, and he'd had a couple of, you know, films that hadn't worked, Blind Day and Sunset, I think. And then all of a sudden he has Die Hard. Then he has Die Hard 2. Bonfire of the Vanities hasn't reached an audience or critics yet. 
So he's kind of riding high. Was he like high on his own supply at that point? And do you think that's one of the reasons that 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 fed his kind uh, of? I, he was to a degree, and in fact, at one point on this thing, because you knew when, him before uh, and after, so you'd be best, you know. Uh, yeah, at, at one point on this, uh, 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 Joel said to him, "Bruce, why are you doing this?" And he said, "Because I can." Mm. And you know, um, you know that. Um, uh, help me here. Uh, uh, Kevin Smith tells the story uh, yeah. about you know, the love-hate relationship he had with him. But at one point, um, there was a studio that was giving notes on um, the picture he did with uh, 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 on uh, um, the, the, the Kevin Smith was actually appears in, I guess, the fourth Die Hard movie. I think. Yeah. Right. So on that picture, uh, he was in the room when uh, Bruce was in a phone call where the studio had a problem with something and the studio executive gives this long note. And then Bruce says, I have one question for you. Who is your second choice to play, to play uh, John, uh, McClane. John McClane? And that yeah. was the end of the phone call. Yeah. Uh, I had another experience uh, now on this after this, where maybe because I never confronted Bruce on this, um, where another movie he did called striking distance was being made where Bruce, again, did what he did on this movie uh, and was ad-libbing a great deal and sort of directing some of the other actors. And at one point, there's a scene in that movie where there's a barbecue. It was a cop movie, and there's a bunch of cops at a barbecue. And um, at one point, one of the other cops, they all blame him for like testifying in a, in a corrupt police case at some time, so the other cops are not happy with him. And one of the other cops... Uh, uh, is supposed to push him at the barbecue because he's you know, calling him and, and cursing him. Mm -hmm. And Bruce said to the actor who had a small part in the movie, "Listen, you know what? Instead of pushing pushing me, throw your beer bottle at me." And you know this guy is like, you know, got he's working in the movie maybe one or two days. This is the star of the movie. He's noticed already on the set the star is always saying, "No, put the camera over here," right? So he listens to him. So he throws the beer bottle at Bruce. Bruce ducks, but Bruce didn't tell anybody that this was happening. This is now a real, real, a real bottle of beer that is mostly full. It hits somebody else in the crowd, opens up their forehead. Hey. The guy has to go to the, go to the hospital and get stitches, and filming stops for like two hours. So after that, I get the phone call from studio executives. That movie, listen, uh, we had this picture. We just wrapped it. We had a test screening. Bruce ad libbed so much that is incomprehensible you get along with him we want you to go talk to him and tell him we're going to do reshoots and you'll be at his side and again this is the job of the studio executives not me mm -hmm. so i go there and they so so uh i go there and i meet with him and he says you know you know steve they want one of these like action adventure movies from us that's what they're trying to do and i said well i think that's what you signed on to do here but you know what? Why don't, you know what? Together, we can outwit them. Together, we can. They won't even see what's coming. So I managed to appeal to him like that. We'll do. It. And so on that picture on striking distance, the the plot was so incomprehensible that I had to change. Like uh, the, the, there was there were there were scenes. That I had to change the story, and there were scenes in the movie that were supposed to be to be years before. In other words, the the, the case that made everybody hate him, where he had testified was before the movie began. So I had to do, I, I wrote like 
I had to change like a third of the movie. And I was kind of like a producer of that portfolio, was on the <laughs> set every day on the reshoots. And we had to make the continuity of the movie change it that it was present. It was in the present, the case that he had testified on. So it was like a major reinvention of the movie. And there's a scene in the movie that's a serial killer stuff. And one of the cases is supposed to be 10 years earlier. And if you're paying attention, all the cars in that scene are <laughs> old cars. I mean, now you look at the movie, you can't tell because the movie's from like 19, you know, whatever it is, 1991 or whatever right. it is. But there's a scene where one of the killings is supposed to be now in the movie, but all the cars on the street are are, are 1980 or older. <laughs> so that's the giveaway uh, of that. And again, this idea that she's a nun, again, this totally deconstruction thing, the idea that like, well, the hero always gets the girl, so let's make it impossible for him to get the girl by making her a nun. Which is okay. I mean, that's cool. It's okay, but again, it's it's it, 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 it's it's all in line with that Jacques Derrida, uh, Lacan, is it Lacan or Lacan, you know, the old, the old, that whole thing of, you know, art and unraveling and stuff like that, which I totally get. Now, of course, the movie I wrote to unravel got unraveled itself, uh, which was uh, which was um, uh, a picture I did end up being Van Damme was the star uh, knockoff. That was a script that I uh, wrote, which to completely un uh, uh, upend what you see in an action movie. But it was filming in Hong Kong and the producers were uh, uh, so concerned about the upcoming uh, takeover of Hong Kong by uh, mainland China mm -hmm. that unbeknownst to me they rewrote that script like to not trigger the chinese authorities so my intentions on that being the unravel in, in that movie originally my original plan was that uh, the characters were a cia front which was a garment business and suddenly there's murders and killings right and they think that it's because of the cia and the cold war is and the payoff was no, it was just Garmentos, like no. that you thought it was like a Cold War plot, but it really was that that everybody, both the the, the communists and uh, the Americans, everybody had gotten so, their heads so into their 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 fronts, their 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 CIA cutout fronts of garment companies that they were taking it seriously, <laughs> and the murders and the killings and the spying was all about like the new line of, of clothing, you know. <laughs> So it ended up becoming, uh, it didn't, it ended up becoming a, 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 a like a more conventional movie with Russian bad guys. My villains were not Russian; they were Chinese, and they were they were they were Chinese people. They were they were Chinese spies, you know, Ch Chinese communist spies who again had completely embraced the garment business and capitalism because they're screwing the fashion models, you know. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, so my attempt to do to to do the uh, to do the uh, uh, unraveling to do the anti uh, uh, action movie uh, was uh, uh, in its own way uh, undermined as this one. Last action hero was an attempt to do the same thing again, again deconstructing the. No one has really uh, got that got it one hundred percent right. Uh, well, Again, the last action here was another one where they, you know, again, and, and I know John McTiernan. I spoke to John McTiernan after it, and he realized as the as they were rewriting the movie that it was getting fuzzy. He says, you know, does 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 uh, Arnold's character exist when the projector isn't running? You know, 
And mm-hmm. the audience is familiar with the tropes of action movies, and they can get a picture that makes fun of it. You know, like Arm and Flint. The Arm and Flint movies were great successes. They're parodies of James Bond, and everybody is familiar enough with the gimmicks of James Bond mm-hmm. to like get the joke. Uh, but what happened in in uh, Last Action Hero is somehow it segued from being a parody of action movies to a parody of Hollywood. So it got into jokes where like all of a sudden your partner is a cartoon cat. The idea that you have unlikely partners, there's a scene you're, he says, uh, priest, you go with the rabbi, you know, like whatever they, you know, all, we get all that joke, but then there's like, you give a cartoon cat and like, what is that? And then there's a joke in, in there. There was always a joke in the script where the kid says that phone number five, 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 if you noticed every phone number that is, you know, that was a legitimate joke. That that, that was a joke about movie making. Yeah. And then when they go to the police set, the kid says, this set is overproduced. There is no such thing as a police station that would, it's, it's overproduced. That's, you know, so it's crossed the line into being inside baseball jokes, mm. jokes about the filmmaking process that are too obscure. It's one thing to do jokes about the filmmaking process in a movie like Singing in the Rain to pick a classic. Uh, or even um, uh, the player. Enough people are familiar with the movie business to get those jokes. Mm-hmm. But when you're getting like you know jokes about like you know the, the you know uh, the Steenbeck editing deck or something that are like you know like wait a minute like so I, I think John realized that he sort of wandered off the reservation you know on that one as well. It's lost his way. Now I have a movie that right now I've been trying to make for years, which is a send up of action movies. That's almost gotten made three times. And I'm literally waiting with bated breath for a rising star who I can't name now uh, <laughs> to commit. But all of his people, you know, his agent, his manager, they all want him to do it. So um, hope, hopefully uh, this guy's pretty smart, uh, this actor. And hopefully this one will will stay true to the plan to be a uh, a, a riff on action movies. But... It will have suspense and scares and the villain, the villains, while I'm using like like um, uh, um, Alan Rickman or uh, Richard, um, help me here in, in the running man, um, Richard Dawson uh, are, are uh, going to be uh, uh, straight enough for the movie to work. So film at 11, uh, you'll be the first to hear um, <laughs> the, the actor just started. The actor is starting a movie Monday. So the his agents and managers all read the script. They said, we don't want to give him the script to read this week. He's got his head into the new movie. So like, we'll give him to read in a couple of weeks. So I will fill wow. you in then and you'll have the uh, the exclusive uh, the, the exclusive uh, uh, line. And, and again, we'll, we'll be having this conversation three years from now. We're going, right. look, look, look what they did to my son. Look what they, look, look how they massacred my boy. Yeah, I'll be doing <laughs> but hopefully not. Now this, this scene was always in my script. Right. But again, this scene where they, they, they blindfold him, right? And they and they and they have the guy already, the butler with the blades, right? Mm-hmm. Right. This scene here where he, where they bring in his friend, this was all in my script, and where they tell him to hold the lead and the gold. Yeah. The scene where they say they put it in his hands, right? Isn't this coming up right now? One is gold, one is lead, they're only only uh one electron. Electron. One electron apart on the on the on the on the on the table of uh that was always in the movie, but the audience knows it already. Mm-hmm. 
the audience knows now. So again, it's just again like the Goldfinger scene where they're all having very civilized. They're having mint juleps, and they explain what they're up to in Goldfinger, like at the at the horse ranch. That was the model for this uh, here, where they're about to put the gold in his hand. But we already know what you already know, you know. So so uh, even the fact that they that that they might hurt him, you know, they're not going to hurt him when they blindfold him. Or the guy, and at one point when he went put the blindfold on, I think the butler took his blades out. I don't know whether they do that yet in here or not. So obviously, um, Andy McDowell wasn't the the first choice. There, there was uh, Mariska Detmers was supposed to be on the picture for a while, and then yeah. Isabella Rossellini. But I think there was a clash of, um, and then they were looking for anyone basically to jump in. But I mean, by and large, she did a pretty great job being parachuted into the movie while it was already underway, right? Uh, yes. In fact, there's um. Uh, you know, my anecdotes are are after the movie's underway, but you can get um, Richard E. Grant wrote a book uh, about his yeah. experience in the movie business. And he has a whole chapter on Hudson Hawk. So if someone wants to do a deeper dive into the whole history of that picture, uh, you can like get Richard E. Grant's book. And um, I'm sure it's available on Amazon. And Richard E. Grant, if you're listening to this, you can, you know, send me a bottle of wine or something because I just, you know, sold a couple more of your books. Um, was there a little bit of a, the, the travelogue style of, you know, you, in in when I was young, you used to go to the movies to see foreign countries because we couldn't actually, we didn't go on yeah, foreign well, holidays, we, you know. My script, uh, both my drafts had the same travelogue element. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the things that was interesting about Happy, you talk about how, um, you know, motion pictures are, are not written or produced or directed in a vacuum. There's other movies being made that affect you. And I already mm -hmm. talked about how, the um, Eddie Murphy uh, picture where they said, okay, the movie failed where he was with children. So you can't have a child. So he can't get to Disneyland there. So then uh, he was dating a girl uh, in the movie. If you still see it to this day, Beverly Hills Cop 3, there's a, um, uh, a, a woman who works at Disneyland. Right. But, and, and I did a draft where that was his way in. He was dating her. And then he made a movie called the distinguished, he made a movie called, uh, um, uh, I forget the movie. It was a romantic comedy. He was working for a fashion house. Boomerang? Uh, what, what? What? Boomerang, yes. So that movie tanked. And then they go, the audience doesn't like Eddie Murphy in a romantic comedy, so he can't have a romance with that girl. <laughs> right? And then the then because they had started the movie, and Joel Silver is going to be producer, and then they canceled the movie, and uh, uh, Joel had some kind of conflict with Eddie, uh, which I think I did an interview somewhere. I go into detail on that. Uh, and uh, enough of a conflict with it, with 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 uh, Joel that he went back to John Landis, who previously had a conflict with. Um, so the movie was over budget. So now the budget was slashed. So we could not build the fake Disneyland that I had wanted. And they ended up using some kind of generic amusement park, you know, and recycling uh, the rides at Universal Studios. So like we took that we had no money. So we have the the uh, earthquake ride and we said it was alien attack. We repurposed it, you know, and mm -hmm. things like that. And the and uh, it drives me crazy, but the fake Disneyland uh, in the in the script had an Americana theme, you know. So it was like old New Orleans, you know, which Disney yeah. does to a degree. They have New Orleans Square, and they have like uh, the Tom Sawyer. Yeah, uh, yeah. Main Street USA. There's a certain amount of Americana in the in the mm -hmm. real Disneyland. So in our fake Disneyland, at the end of the movie, when they chase him into a ride, the ride was called Dixieland, and it was all animatronic, antebellum South. <laughs> so there were like 
Confederate soldiers, you know, <laughs> robotic. It would have been fucking, it was great. And Eddie Murphy was in Stitches, you know, uh, but it ended up becoming a generic dinosaur ride. And they were out of so, so much out of money that the dinosaurs that, and, and they, that for the movie, now they have no money. So they don't have enough money even to have the dinosaurs operating. So the dinosaur ride is under repairs. So the dinosaurs don't move. And the dinosaurs are the same dinosaurs that you can rent for a kid's birthday party. Oh God! Right, that, that, that's how low budget that is. So in this movie here, uh, when he woke up uh, after he was knocked out, and he woke up, he looked out the window. He was in Venice, mm-hmm. and there was a whole chase scene through Venice on boats. Nice, right? And unfortunately, the Indiana Jones movie, The Last Crusade, had a sequence in Venice with a chase in boats. So Joe will call me like he saw like the premiere of that movie. And so we got to take out the whole Venice sequence, right? Because it's going to look like it's the same. And then in my next draft, instead of a chase through Venice, I don't even remember what it was anymore. You read the drafts recently. Tell me. There was also this other place in uh, San Gimigiano or something. Was that right? In in Italy. And there was a Vespa chase and there was like a three-wheeler uh, Italian. Yes, like, yes. Delivery yes that's, that's right. That's that's where, I, that's where I went instead of Venice. In fact, the location scout, we went there. Right, I, okay. I was, on a loca- I was on a location scout for this movie. Right. Picking uh, uh, out locations. So we're always going to, you know, I was there when it was going to be Rome. When he switched it to Rome from London, I was in those conversations. And we San Gimigiano is a, a uh, one of the hill towns. It looks very classic. It, half the commercials you see for any kind of Italian product, whether it's sauce or, or pasta, Peroni. like they film it there. It's, and so it, that, that's what it was. And it was a chase through these streets that are too narrow for automobiles uh, instead of uh, the, the chase uh, uh, on the canals of Venice. Right. Thank you for reminding me. Ah, okay. And does that, is that, is, is that still exist in the movie or not, or no? Yeah, no, we get a lot of um, Curari slapstick here instead, you know, with the, with the par- paralyzing dart. Uh, all right. So uh, anyway, uh, there was a whole sequence where, where in this sequence here where he's now wakes up. Uh, they get, they knock him out and he wakes up. Uh, it was going to be uh, in Venice and he escapes from this uh, from this place for this new robbery um, through a, through a, their custody um, on boats through Venice. And it was very much like the one you saw in the last crusade. So instead, I made the final um, uh, the missing Da Vinci thing was in the possession of a private collector who was a fabulously wealthy um, uh, third world uh, dictator who was now living in retirement on the French Riviera in a in a castle with surrounded by guards and uh, he the dictator with very bad taste so one of the and I guess well this is me I guess doing a very kind of Michael Lehman kind of deconstruction thing uh, at during the course of the sequence you see his contractors are ruining the chateau. You know, like they're, they're like they're, they're like uh, taking down the frescoes and putting up our artwork. So, uh, <laughs> so perhaps I planted the seed of that here. Maybe I, maybe I've met the enemy, and it, and, and it is and it is it is us. <laughs> you said that Lord Queensborough became Lady Queensborough, and then, but what happened to Umshaka generally? Was it that Kevin Michael Hall died? No, uh, just just arbitrarily for no reason at all they just made it a generic butler who happens to have knives in his sleeve whereas when it was a zulu uh a zulu he was using the authentic zulu weapon yeah which is the right. the uh, uh i forget what i i did my research uh the knobkery and the um 
I forget what the other end of it. The one end is a blade. Uh, the uh, but anyway, but he he had the Zulu weapon, uh, which is like has one end as a blade and one end has a thing. Uh, one end is a club, right? Uh, and he had it that was hinged in the middle and went up his sleeve, and it made sense for the South African villain to have a Zulu bodyguard, right? And so, just for no reason at all, he hadn't died for no reason at all. He's just like a, a generic butler. You know, yeah. and and he still has knives up his sleeves, but they're not like any kind of like at least let them be carving knives. You know, like you know for carving roast beef, in the, you know, <laughs> you know, it, it, you know, or something that's like, well, you know, or, or something like you know British. I don't know, but My. Uh, I, it's a change. It, it's a change. I I don't get the. It's a change, and I don't know what it gives you. All these yeah. other changes, they give you something like the idea of they time their. Saw their their I had them timing his thing for the stopwatch. All right, instead of that, songs. You know, yeah. I'm not. You know, it it still is a timing thing. You know, yeah. Uh, you change the museums because you're filming in Europe. You you know, I get that, but yeah. the change of the the really cool butler, and again, inspired by Bond, where you know, our job is like ethnic, right? Yeah, where the villain has some kind of exotic. You know, assistant Jaws, right? A gimmick, right? There is no gimmick to like a butler, a butler who's evil. The butler did it, you know. But the the Bondian impulse indication of a really strange, exotic right hand man is like thrown out the window, right? And how did Bobby Five Tones end up in this scene? This was this was another scene that was supposed to be. It wasn't supposed to be him and and uh, and Hawk together, right? Well, again, it, again, it it became a road picture where yeah. uh, his, his mentor character uh, now was inserted into as much of the movie as possible because uh, Bruce and Danny were getting along so well. One of the things was going on when they were in Italy, and one of the things I guess that uh, got uh, that got uh, Dan Waters even burned out was. You know this that this constant you know reinvented in the movie and inserting uh, um, uh, him into into the movie so it became more and more a buddy picture. Yeah, you know which is fine if that was the plan. If that had been the plan going in, you know, I I I, I did forty eight hours. You know, I mean, I can yeah. do a buddy movie. You know, uh, uh, but the ideal buddy movie they should not be so simpatico. Well, I was going to say, yeah, that's that's kind of uh, silly, isn't it? You want the odd couple, you know, you want them to be different. You want to be pulling in different directions, but and and, and they aren't at all until the one moment he realized he thought he betrayed him. But no, I didn't really betray you. Yeah, you know, Hope and Crosby, Hope and Crosby are constantly trying to double cross each other in the road movies, even though they're buddies. At a certain point, when there's like a possibility to make some money or to get a certain woman, they undermine each other. Right, you know, so they're 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 frenemies, but here it's <laughs> except for the one moment where you think he's betrayed him, they just get along famously. But at the time that this came out, weren't the road pictures already so far in the rearview mirror that the 1990s audience would they even get the references to things like the 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 road pictures and the uh -huh. three studios? I mean, no, no. Another factor, I think that, uh, and it's quite possible that. It's quite possible that and that certain number of critics would have enjoyed the deconstruction of it, or said, well, interestingly enough, mm -hmm. but one of the things was the buzz on this movie 
being over budget, over schedule. And even though I never said a word at the time, right, the gossip that was leaking from location about Bruce taking over the picture yeah. and like rewriting and directing it, you know, my lips were sealed, but that started to leak out. So they had their knives out and fought, you know, they, they had their knives out for it. Yeah. You know, and again, I talk about the domino factor that um, no movies in a vacuum and things, you know, um, affect other movies. I talked about how the Eddie Murphy, Beverly Hills Cop 3 movie, you know, kept morphing and morphing and morphing to to weather vane away in the studio thinking from his previous movies. Yeah. And then after I finished the movie, John Landis had five other writers come in and pile on and uh, unravel the sweater even further. Had I known, I would have used a pseudonym on the movie, but none of them made it. None of the five writers changed it enough to get their name on it. So right. I get all the blame. So I go to, <laughs> I go to, I go to the cash machine with, with, with my a hoodie over my head. Uh, there, there's, they're supposed to show you the movie before it's released, uh, by the way, in case you hate it. So you can use a pseudonym. Right. But I was out of the country and they did not have the technology to like show it to me on the internet at that time. And the last draft I had seen had not changed that much. The studio failed to send me the final draft. If I'd seen how much it changed, I would have used a clever pseudonym like, wow, you know, you know like a, if not Alan Smithy, I don't know what. Yeah. Uh, but going talking about example, the domino effect, okay. After this, the next movie I did with these guys, with Joel Silver thing, was a movie called Ricochet with Denzel Washington, mm -hmm. where the night he got the Academy Award, Joel Silver went up to him and said, you should be in an action movie. I've got one for you. Uh, and I worked closely with 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 uh, Denzel. I got along great with him. I wrote an excellent script, in my opinion, on that movie. And now we had a meeting uh, where the publicity people come into Joel's office and they say, Joel, um, we want to talk about the, the press junket. And because you have two Academy Award-winning actors here, Denzel and John Lithgow, both of whom started out on the New York stage, we think the press junket should be in New York and not in L.A. And Joel said, we're not doing a press junket. And the the, the publicity people, they they, they they turn pale. What do you mean? He says, those bastards, they pissed all over Hudson Hawk. Not, not one decent review. I'm not going to buy them one drink, one canapé, no press conference. And I said, Joel, you and I both know that Hudson Hawk deserved to get raked over the clothes. You told me, I walked into the movie and you said, prepare yourself for the worst. He said, it doesn't matter. This is a great movie with great actors, right? You know, like they'll recognize quality. And now the, 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 the two, the press people say, Joel, you don't understand. If you have a movie with stars of this caliber and you don't have a press junket or press screenings, they will have their knives out. The first thing every review will say was, when a movie like this, with a cast like this, doesn't have a press screening, you know it's a stinker. That will be the first line of every review. And he was adamant he would not change his mind. And that prediction came through, came true. Every almost, you know, every newspaper, every review in the country said exactly that. The only one that didn't was Kevin Thomas in the Los Angeles Times, who was a very serious critic who liked action movies and Hong Kong movies. Mm -hmm. And he said, what the hell was the studio thinking with the movie this quality? Now, today, in hindsight, this movie is in so many books, even hardcover books, not paperback books, as being <laughs> an insightful, insightful like, you know, view of racism in America. And like, you know, like it's like, I mean, Elizabeth Alexander, the poet laureate, who 
read a poem at Obama's inauguration. She wrote a review of this movie. That's not her day job. It's <laughs> not her day job. She wrote a review of this movie, like how brilliant it was. And I see these books now, like the best movies in home video. Like, you know, once in a while I'll go in a bookstore and I go, um, I wonder if anybody I know is in the, in the look in the index. Maybe somebody I know like me is mentioning this book. Uh, and uh, there's all these books, like the best movies in home video. And they'll say the underrated Ricochet. And they go, underrated by you, asshole. I, I remember what you wrote then, not your paperback book now. <laughs> it still hurts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The critics had their knives out. I think they would have been kinder to the movie, had the gossip about Bruce being out of control. And you got to remember that we had escaped this once before. Uh, the um, r Right before Die Hard came out, uh, the, the Bruce and uh, and Sybil Shepard were feuding mm -hmm. on... They were feuding on on uh, the show Moonlighting, yeah, to such a degree that they did several episodes where the supporting cast carried the show. They did two, I think, they did two episodes in a row where only the supporting cast appeared, and they explained that that Simple Shepherd and Bruce were like off the premises, yeah. Uh, and then they did a show on Claymation, and then wow. she got pregnant, which allowed him to do Die Hard. But right before the movie began, um, uh, 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 someone who was doing some work on Bruce's boat, like uh, repairing the, 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 uh, repairing the boat or something uh, drowned. And this is in the news that someone who worked for Bruce Willis drowned, like doing some work on the, uh, under the keel of his boat. Uh, and then I think there was, it might've been a DUI or something. I don't know. So there was a lot of bad press for Bruce. So mm -hmm. when the coming attraction played in for Die Hard, the audience booed and laughed in more than one theater. And the studio executives were in a panic uh, over this. And so if you do your archaeology on this movie, they removed Bruce. They, they had originally had a teaser poster that you still could buy. It's a color picture of Bruce with a gun. That was the original coming soon poster. But then they took those down and replaced them with a poster that showed only the building. Mm -hmm. And the ads for the move for the people may you young people may not know that they used to put ads for advertisements in newspapers and you would see what's playing at the theater this week. And all the ads just show the building and did not list any cast or crew because as soon as you list one, you have to list everybody. And so they actually buried the fact that Bruce Willis is in the movie until the second week when the movie opened big. Now we can admit it. Yeah. So I think that this kind of bad buzz that Bruce had briefly before Die Hard opened, he got again because of the gossip that was coming out on this movie. Yeah. So I think that, I think critics might've been kinder, would have appreciated the deconstruction and might've even gotten the references to the road movie. When did you last see Hudson Hawk? Can you, can you remember? I'm uh, sorry. I have not seen it. I have not seen it in years. It's the first time I've seen this movie. This is a movie that like, if it comes up on television, you know, I just, Flip the channel. I have not looked at this movie in years. That's why I said I'm talking to you. I'm, I'm sort of looking at you in the Zoom call more than I'm looking at the screen. I have two <laughs> screens open here now. Uh, that, uh, uh, that uh, you know, I, I said I don't remember if we had the scene where they put the lead in his hand or the gold in his hand. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, nonetheless, uh, the audience would not know what was going on. This this scene here now with the printing machine on, this is where you finally realize what it was. But it's again, it's been given away. Yeah. In the opening minutes in the movie, and I had a running, I had a running, I also had a running catchphrase that he had. I think he says, uh, "No way, no way he can lose." Yeah, he would say well, to himself before he did anything dangerous. 
no way he can lose every time he's in a precarious situation. Yeah, where uh, did that come so, from? Is that a phrase? Uh, I don't know where it came from. I don't know where it came from. No, that's pretty cute. No, yeah. it's like one of those um, things that he says to himself, like you know, come out to the coast, we'll get together, have a few laughs. You know, well, he's the, again, you know, Bruce can do that. And yeah, he does that well. He's doing, and again, that's not in this movie anymore because he's never alone. Yeah, he's always there with uh, with Danny. So yeah. the opportunities where he gives himself a, a pep talk or mutters to himself with Bruce can very few actors can sell that. You know, if you look at Die Hard, a lot of people cannot pull that off. Yeah. Uh, but again, all of that went out with the window because he's constantly with other people. I was here when we filmed this stuff here. I was here when we filmed all this uh, big climax. Well, this was your idea. I mean, this came straight out of the pages of your draft. This big sort of Rube Goldberg machine, or oh. yeah, yeah, yes, and 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 the, and, and the villains get covered in gold. You know, uh, it was all yeah. the same. Well, you're 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 making me revisit this and reread the scripts and look at the movie for the first time in all these years. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking, hey, I can recycle some of this dialogue right. in another movie. What I always <laughs> what I always try to do when I write for an actor is listen to them talk either in previous movies or in person, and try and capture their voice. I mean, um, a mistake that a lot of people make is a lot of writers make is that um, everybody sounds the same. I mean, in a well-written script, you should be able to cover the name of who's of speaking and recognize what actor says that. Yeah. Uh, you look at the script of Die Hard, you can tell when it's Bruce talking and when it's Alan Rickman. It's a totally different yeah. syntax, a totally different kind of dialogue. Um, and uh, uh, everybody, uh, uh, both uh, the Mayflowers and uh, uh, um, uh, James Coburn, uh, they all sound exactly the same in this movie, right? Because you had a whole the, the whole um, CIA or MTVIA agents. I mean, that was kind of in there, and that felt like it was a, a holdover from you know there were betrayals. You know, no, this guy isn't really working for, or he was working for the CIA, but then he went rogue. And it's not yeah. even the CIA; it's the it's they don't even say what agency it is in your drafts yeah. they say oh it's one that doesn't get too much publicity but you know that they're g-men you know so yeah. that's the that's the main thing but yeah well i i had the idea that uh <laughs> that the main cia guy and again it's again this inversion uh i had here they've got this old hand in the cia mm -hmm. and i had a character very much like the character in uh the last bond in the last bond movie uh felix leader says where did you get the book of mormon from I had right. like a, a young, you know, uh, Gen Z, yeah, uh, CIA guy with no respect uh, right. for his elders. So uh, here they made those characters fools. Yeah, he, 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 you know. But I had a guy who was um, uh, a threat, but yeah. also was a commentary on the passing of the torch. Right, right, right. Yeah, there was. He's the guy that kills Felix Leader, but when he comes in, he can't believe he met James Bond. Yeah. He's, oh my God, I've heard about you and everything. You know. I, I I sort of said I had a sense I was going to be in trouble when Michael Lehman said that one of his favorite movies that he was hoping to emulate uh, in this was Casino Royale. Now he's oh, the David Nevin version. Old, the that version of Casino <laughs> Royale, which is a famous a famous train wreck right. you know but when i said what do you like about that and he said i like the way it upended the whole james bond mythos and uh -huh. i said well what mythos are we upending here right and he said you know these kind of movies but again that's such a broad target yeah you know you can upend james bond mythos 
uh, or like which you could do in the our man Flint movies. Yeah. And I think in a way, I think I'm, I'm flashing back to a conversation I had with Michael. And I said, yeah, well, you know, like maybe that's why James Coburn turned up in this movie. Cause I talked about the Iron Man Flint movies. Yeah. Uh, so I know I can tell you, I know lots of people, a lot of Gen Z people tell me this is, Oh, this is my favorite movie of yours. And I go, uh, yeah, well, okay. Uh, but then again, I have to tell myself that I have, I've had a conversation with, I could do a whole riff here on, on interns. I, I'm, you know, the, uh, the, the university provide me with interns and I, I have actually mentored some interns and given them notes on the script of some of them going on to have careers. But uh, a lot of times someone will say to me, some of these interns, the same people that say, this is my favorite movie of your movies. And I go, oh, really? I, I can't I can't say the same. But they say, Stephen, how did you get started in show business? And I say, well, I began in silent television. <laughs> and, they, and they go, oh, okay. They, they Oh, my God. They, they think that's a real thing, you know? Uh, Amazing. I had a letter that had to be postmarked by 5 p.m. for legal reasons. I, I forget what it was. It might have been like my 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 vote for the Academy Awards or whatever, whatever it was. So I said, is that letter ready? You know, and I said, listen, I'm running out. I'll mail it. I'll take it to the post office. Bring me the letter. So the intern brings me the letter and I look at it. And it's addressed and stamped on the. So I said, you addressed and stamped this on the wrong side of the envelope. <laughs> and I swear to God, he says. There's a right side. <laughs> this was someone who had never, ever done snail mail from scratch. Now, I'm sure that at one point or another, he had a self-addressed stamped envelope at one point, but had never done a, a, a self-addressed stamped letter yeah. from scratch. I could dine out on my, on my, on, on my, uh, on my intern stories. <laughs> we were watching um, them today. You know, the giant ants movie. Of from course, 19- of course. Oh, yeah with my 11 year old and I had to explain because someone was reading a telegram and I said, Oh, that was like a text message from the 1950s. <laughs> right. uh, the fellow who wrote snow crash, snow crash, help me here. I'm, I'm having a senior moment. Um, uh, Neil, uh, Neil something. Yes. He yeah. said the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed, um, <laughs> but there's, there's, a, there's, there's an interesting book called the Victorian internet uh, called the Victorian internet. And prior <laughs> to world war one, Great title. Uh, the world was completely wired. And if you had the resources, uh, you could communicate instantly with Australia with a teletype machine. Mm-hmm. The teletype machine, for our younger audience, looks like a typewriter, but it types a telegram. And it comes out the other end. In fact, you if you, you've ever seen some old television shows, uh, like there was a show called Have Gun, Will Travel, where he was a cowboy uh, you could hire, like a sort of like a private eye. And his card said, Wire Paladin, San Francisco. So uh, different bit, and to this day, sometimes just see stationary where like you would type in, that would be like your email address. Right. So like Paladin, uh, Paladin, San Francisco, that telegram would get to him. You'd have to, you'd have to like put an address. Mm-hmm. It was like, you know, um, and then what happened when World War One, uh, the, all the, 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 the great central powers and the allies severed the telephone lines and put in interruptions. So nothing was instantaneous anymore. Right. And, wow. uh, and 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 they put it in blocks. But uh, there were wealthy people who had uh, uh, tele- who had uh, a telegram in their house, like a really rich person would have a teletype machine in their house because they wanted to get messages from the other from their business in Europe or something. Right. And this would be like in 1901. You know, you, you know, you, you would uh, you it would be like getting instantaneous text message. The fax machine 
was invented in the 19th century. And there were there were there were experiments in the 1950s where some newspapers would let you get electronic newspaper in your house. You can <laughs> Google this. So there were some people that had fax machines. Now the fax machine then was like, you know, it was like the size bigger than a microwave, you know, but it was like, you know, uh, and people, but people had them in their houses and the paper would get printed at their house, but it ended up being like, you know, counterproductive or too expensive, uh, whatever. So, uh, uh, the idea that, that the future is, is here, it's just not evenly, um, uh, distributed yet. And it's true for a fact, uh, there are, uh, there are actually better phone service in, um, in, um, some parts of the world. Uh, especially the former Eastern Bloc has a better phone service than uh, than some places in Europe and the United States because they started from scratch. They're mm -hmm. still not making their old infrastructure work. Right. Like, for example, um, uh, today we didn't start our conversation on time because uh, a lot of the phone wires here uh, where I live are underground. And when we've had these tremendous rains now for weeks and weeks and weeks, they've gotten flooded and they're shorting out. But the uh, newer phone lines or or or, uh, UP, uh, or uh, DSL lines or uh, or uh, that are being put in, they're uh, immune from that. They're not uh, affected by a pipe running in an old, now corroding uh, 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 iron pipeline. Right. Uh, <laughs> well, you should be writing like a Victorian action movie. That would be something. Like oh, try, a, try, a, try, try, been there done that i'm telling you i have and, and my you know i've had my you know my manager he says Stephen, why are you doing this to me whenever i have downtime right and I'm, I'm not like committed to something i keep writing like period pictures <laughs> i have had my favorite unshot movies are period pictures and i've done that a couple of times and because my movies have made a lot of money a couple of billion dollars there's always some idiot producer i could talk into like getting on board one of these things and even like, and they'll say, well, you know, this is not your usual thing. So uh, I'm just going to give you a little money up front. The big money will come later. But then like down the line, we never get it. Alan Rickman was going to be in one of these movies for me. And then he, he died on me. Yeah. You know, like, like, I can't believe it. Well, I you hope know, you have better luck with the actor that you said is going to be reading your your latest uh, script in a couple uh, yes. of years. Third time's the charm. And this guy could be the one, you know? Yeah. Well, that that is actually kind of a, uh, a uh, like I said, an anti-action movie, but even though it's the anti-action movie, there's nonstop action and danger and suspense. There and you, you do not know what the bad guys are doing. You do <laughs> not know what they're doing. You don't know what they're doing until you get to the very end, which is right. uh, you know, what I uh, what I highly recommend. As it should be. Well, thanks. Great talking to you. Thanks for coming back on. You have the biggest episode, of course, your diehard episode of Rogue Commentary. You were one of the first to come on board. And I really appreciate that. You gave us life in our early days. And here you are again, coming back for a second uh, a second bite, and this time Hudson Hawk. So thanks so much for coming back. And one day, one day, we'll either do the new one or we'll do something else. And I look forward to it. All right. Great talking to you. Great talking to you. Thanks a lot, Stephen. Okay. Enjoy Brexit. Yeah, thanks. It's going really well. <laughs> <laughs>